Well, from the over-the-top studios at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado, it's another edition of Mint Life Radio. How do we even remember to be here, John and Dr. Robin Saltonstall? <laughs> well, what we do is, A, we make notes on calendars. B, I have a whiteboard at home and I write it up there. And C, we learn to live in the present and not focus on the past and not worry about what I need to do at 10.30 or 11. So you need to pick up your daughter and be out of here at 10.15, George, but I want you to focus on the present. But I'm worried about the future. No. <laughs> That's called time travel. <laughs> An important distinction that I've, that I've learned riding and I impress upon clients and other people is you need to distinguish between what you can control, like having your bike in good shape, and what you can't control, like a headwind. And that's important because here you actually can control when we're ready and when we're done. And I don't want to, you know, get lost in my recent race across the West, but I think that's what made that race so, one of the things which made it so enjoyable. I actually was in the moment. I didn't care if there was a headwind. I didn't care if it was hot. I just enjoyed riding my bike. Yes. And when we're, our body exists in the present, only in the present. So especially as an athlete, when we stay in the present, we feel the headwind, we meet the headwind, we might even laugh with the headwind, and then it's gone. Or it's not gone, but we're still there. Right. One of my favorite anecdotes, Dr. Bob Breedlove, who was killed in RAM, he, he called the wind his friend. And his rationale was the wind made the trees quake, and the Quakers were friends. And therefore, riding into a headwind, he was with his friends. And that, that's an interesting way of reinterpreting reality. Maybe not reinterpreting, but interpreting. And it's one of the things that we have a choice about in lots of things in life. Yes, and I, if we take the wind, for example, as an opportunity rather than as a threat, if it's an opportunity, then we open to that opportunity. What can we do with this here in this moment? You know, and it's, I've said it before on this show, but after I got hit by Bambi, um, which is why I was so offended when you said your favorite movie was Bambi, <laughs> uh, I just don't even think about the future anymore. It's two near-death experiences in my life. I've just like, eh, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to enjoy the here and now. Yeah, that's another thing that I try to impress on myself as well as on my athletes, where something goes wrong, you say, opportunity! Exactly. In fact, that's a line I picked up from Connie Carpenter years and years ago. Opportunity! That makes a lot of sense. I went mountain biking on Sunday, had just a great time, and then I rode up Independence Pass very slowly on Monday with my legs hurting, and I said, ah, opportunity to practice sticking to it. Opportunity! to figure out how much I should ride and when should I stop. It applies in lots and lots of situations. Everything applies to everything. It allows us to use our deep activation in the brain, which is that if we frame something as an opportunity, we start to look for all of what's there that we can cultivate. That's a great point. You, and, it, and it's when you were talking about, I think, last week, which is you see the particular but your consciousness expands more and more around whatever is potentially a problem, but you're calling an opportunity. And so you see more things, you experience more things that make it an opportunity. 
Now, Robin, I want to kind of go into holiday depression on this. Because I used to always get very, very sad. I'd look forward to Christmas or look forward to Halloween or any number of holidays throughout the year. Look forward to big events coming up. And there was so much anticipation that it was a real letdown once they were over. And then you have to start looking toward the next thing. And ever since the Bambi incident, I've been enjoying life a whole lot more and enjoying the holidays a lot more because, you know, they're here. We have a great time. And then I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah. So one of the one going back to this notion of deep, deep activation and the most simple example of it is if I were to say foot, your foot, you immediately think about your foot. That's where your awareness goes. So in your holiday experience, you have all of this kind of elation around the anticipation, and then the event happens, and that's no longer there. And what you start to deep activate on is what's no longer there. And you notice what's missing, you notice how bad it is, you notice how what was here before, it's not here anymore. So you deep activate on the negative. But if you shift your awareness and go, okay, that's done, What's here now? What am I moving toward? What, you know, it depends on the individual. But the deep activation applies to the negative as well as the positive. So if we think of deep, dark thoughts, we're going to have our brain looks for every single deep, dark thought example in our head that it can come up with. And that's called rumination. That sounds like a cow. Roommate. <laughs> but that's exactly <laughs> what I think. Chew, right. Chewing the cud. <laughs> chewing the cud. My, my first job when I graduated from Stanford was in the theater, and we did lots of big shows, operas, Gilbert and Sullivan, and so on. Went through exactly the same thing George did. You'd be all excited. You'd be building sets. You'd be rehearsing. You'd do a run that was great or not so great, and then it would be over, and I'd be depressed. And part of what I learned was it's what happens. You do a big yeah. event, you're over, you're down. And one of the ways of dealing with it is to attach less importance to the event and more importance to the process leading up to the event. Yes. I think of Race Across America. And I mean, I, we talk about that a lot because it's such a huge part of my life. I've done it for 23 years or been involved with it for 23 years. And I was never, ever happy at the finish of one of the rams that I did because I would always be thinking, oh my gosh, if I had gone faster here, I could have done this, or if we'd only been here, or the crew had tried, there were so many things, and I'm already thinking what I could have done to make that race better instead of just enjoying it for what it was and actually finishing something that not very many people finish. For a great example, I've got a client like this guy a lot, Jan Kramer. I think you met him at the start of I Raw. He DNF'd with pulmonary edema. Like and 80 I, miles to go. Or yeah, and, and I got an email from what a great experience. Best experience of my life. I loved riding through the desert. I loved riding through the mountains. I just wanted to be on my bike and pedal. And I didn't get to finish, but boy, I sure enjoyed it. And I want to go back. And that's an interesting example. I mean, he could have been 180 degrees of Oh, blankety blank, I had to quit with only 80 miles to go. But he was really positive about it. And we do. We're each different in how we work with that particular phenomenon of preparing for an event, being in the event, finishing the event, and then being post-event. 
and some people we all try we all we are all explorers internally and as we participate in things we learn and we teach ourselves so George your example you were rehearsing the event for the next one it's actually an anticipation of the next one and we have a phenomenon in our brain that I call time travel which is really a referencing of ourselves in past time and future time it's part of our what's called default mode network so we do that so when we finish an event we naturally rehearse it what did I do and and then we take that and use that for the next event and and we can do that all kinds of ways I, I have a friend who uh, has a urinary tract infection now needs to use a uh, catheter and bag and this friend had difficulty trying by himself to empty the bag and he got really down on himself and that's an interesting example of kind of ruminating and brooding about the past incident rather than being in the present okay CNN is on I like this show I'm going to watch this show and I'm not going to think about my inability to do it and I'm not going to worry about it getting done the next time and I know from my own experience that's terribly, terribly hard to do. And I think part of it depends on the larger context. Am I in a really good mood with energy going into it? Ah, darn it. Spilled it. No worries. Or if I'm already stressed and negative, I spilled it. I go ballistic. Don't be around me. So I, so I think the larger context is really important and a bit of a stretch to athletic stuff, but that comes through preparation and training. Um, Carol and I were on a vacation last winter, and I was in a foul mood for the first few days. took me time to relax because I'd been working frantically. And I said, ah, not so good. Let's prepare better, like training better. If you prepare better for a ride and, and you feel like you've covered everything you can, goes or it doesn't go. Yes, and you're actually educating yourself in that preparation is education. It's getting right. yourself literally so that you know something about what you're going to be doing, even though you may know nothing about it. You may get there and feel like I know nothing, but at least you feel prepared. Feel prepared, and, and another part of it is I have a reservoir of energy and some things help fill up my reservoir and other things drain my reservoir. One of the interesting comments you made, Robin, back in 1992 when I was getting ready for Boston, Montreal, Boston, you said the taper is storing energy and that applies all kinds of ways and part of what's important for me is to know is when my reservoir is close to empty. After doing Independence Pass and driving home in rush hour congested traffic, I found out we were going out to dinner with friends. My reservoir was flat empty. I said, excuse me, I think I need to go home alone. Mm -hmm. And another day, I would have been full of energy and said, oh, great, let's go talk. And that has such a good application to midlife as well because as we get, as we, whether athlete, not athlete, we start to learn how much energy it takes for us to do X, Y, Z. And then we also start to allocate our energy. So for example, now when I think of doing a distance swim, I actually think about, is that something I want to allocate the amount of energy that I have to? 
or not. Whereas before, I might have said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And so there's this idea of parsing out your own sense of the amount of energy that you have. And that we become even better at that as we get older. So I've got a question for you, Robin. So how do we apply that to different parts of our life? Because my dad was an insurance salesman, very good at it, wanted me to come in and take over his business as he retired. And I really just was not comfortable. I didn't enjoy it. If I would have a bad experience on a sales call, it would really affect me for future sales calls because I would really focus on the bad. Whereas in radio and now with podcasting and networks, I mean, I occasionally have a bad interview where I finish and just go, wow, that was not good. But it doesn't, I certainly don't dwell on it and I look forward to the next one. So why, and I can really beat myself up uh, over bad performance in sports. I mean, I think back to some really awful races I've had and it just eats me up. Um, Why is it I'm able to do the right thing with, say, interviews or announcing or public speaking, but uh, with sales, I just, there's no way. You know, going back to the idea of the deep activation, when we're we're engaged in something that we don't feel akin to, so it sounds as though, and I don't want to be making this up, but it sounds as though you didn't feel akin to the sales. No, not at all. And therefore, you're actually not fully available to yourself in that. And so you start from a position of deep activation of failure. I'm not good at this. And then you continue to fulfill that because you look for all the examples. So whereas there's a kind of resilience when we're doing something that we are inclined toward and our brain actually lights up when we're doing something that we like. And so for you, if you have a poor interview, that's a lemon that you turn into lemonade. Whereas in the other situation, a lemon is like, oh my God, they're all lemons here and they're even grapefruit. And you know, it's really bad. So how about when we're younger and learning, you know, in school, hey, I'm really good at English or history or this or that, but I'm terrible at math. Well, maybe you're not, but it's certainly easy to make that identifier. It is, and that's where it's very important for the adults around the children who are in school to encourage them to reframe what they think they're not good at. So, for example, I was working with a girl recently who's um, 14, and she said, I don't speak well, but she was very, very animated in her body. And I said, you know, 95% of communication is nonverbal. How are you communicating? What about when you dance this thing? And she realized that she was a communicator. And I said, okay, now you know you're a communicator. How are you going to take that skill and put it in words? And it became a, something, an adventure for her, of an adventure for her. To, how do I take my ability to move my body and communicate sadness or elation and say that in words? And she took it on. First, one of the things I like about you as a coach, Robin, and I've, I've learned to do it myself, find something positive about anything. Jam, boy, serious. look at how much you learned out of doing raw. Boy, isn't that great? And you had a great time instead of, you're turkey, you're you're only the second DNF I've had. Now, shifting a little, another thing that I think comes with maturity is diversification of interests and rewards. 
and start with the stock market analogy. Hold one stock, goes up, goes down. If it goes down, you're burned. If it goes up, it's good. Ram 96, I was having a really slow race. But by God, I was going to finish. Wonderful guy on my crew named Mike. He worked at University Bicycles here in Boulder. And he couldn't figure out why I didn't just quit. Well, he was a crit racer. He diversified his athletic experiences. Eh, doing poorly in the crit this week? Drop out. I'll do better this next week. The way that applies to life is I now have a rich panoply of things, mostly Again, like stocks, rather than investing heavily in one thing, I invest a little in a lot of things. And some of them don't work, but there are enough of them that are working quite nicely that I'm getting a good reward. And I think that comes with maturity, both because I've experienced more different things and I've found more things that are rewarding. And also, again, Robin's point that my consciousness has expanded to attach more meaning and value around a particular thing. And I feel that that diversity makes us much more interesting people as well. It's uh, a little boring to sit in a group where you only have one thing that you can talk about. Or only one thing that somebody else is willing to talk about. Right. And they yeah. talk extensively. When, I mean, one, one of the most wonderful types of conversation is when you're talking about something and somebody else picks up the thread but spins it differently. And you say, boy, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you're engaged enough that you spin it differently yourself rather than just being linear X, 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 X. Why was that like a pedaling motion, John? <laughs> <laughs> because at times pedaling feels that way. X, X, X. But, but again, I mean, it, it, an interesting example of the diversification of reward. Um, climbing independence was hard because I got mountain biking the other day. But... Wow, look at all the colors. Listen to those waterfalls. Now, the problem with waterfalls is the road gets steeper when the river goes faster. But don't think about that. Listen to the waterfalls. Look at the changes in colors of the trees. About 200 feet before the top, I actually saw it coming down. I saw these beautiful purple flowers growing out of a rock. And the rock was at about 80 degrees vertical. And it was a good 500 feet to the valley below. And these flowers had decided, we can grow there. So I diversified all my reward experiences doing it. And the fact that it hurt was one aspect, but it wasn't the total experience. Yes. It's that widened focus. You widen your focus. And I've widened my focus, and I've trained myself over the years to widen my focus during a ride, during a ski, during a hike, Mm -hmm. during as many things as possible. Because that helps me. I I get more out of the experience, and and it's a way of dealing with experiences that could be negative. How do we deal with negative experiences? I would call them distractions. We dilute them. I I think of that as so, and it's a really important point that you're raising because many people think that they push them down. If you try to push them, if you push something down, if you push something down, you have to keep it so you have something to push down. It's a kind of, so it's really important <laughs> that the thing that you want to have be diminished is just diminished and you keep awareness of it, but you add so many other things. It's like you can zoom in on that cramp in your butt, 
Or you can say, hello, cramp in my butt. And I'm going to zoom out from there and feel how I've got a really good cadence going, or the sky is blue, or whatever you're doing. But this zooming out that includes whatever that negative thing is. It in, it's inclusive of it, not exclusive of it. And it's critical for performance. And what about stress? Is stress always bad? I want to be stress-free. But stress kind of adds some spice to our life, doesn't it? It does. And there's quite a bit of research recently, although people have, people have misinterpreted it. This stress can be very helpful in that it heightens our awareness. It opens our eyes. We actually see more. More of our brain is available to us. But there's a point at which we slide over into too high a heart rate. For example, we slide over into fear. So the, the first signs of stress where we're more alert are terrific for, for performance. And actually, those are when we're excited. In, te- in, in a sense, that's a, the first form of stress. So, but a lot of people have misinterpreted that research and thought, well, it's okay if I only get four hours of sleep and I make myself do this and that and this and that. So it's, a, it's really keeping that to a level of that ex- kind of excruciating excitement. And we're saying performance, but wouldn't that apply to life in general? Anything, yeah, anything. The, the way I visualize that, and, and it's often illustrated this way, is, is as a bell-shaped curve. Yes. And as your stress level arises, your performance arises, and you finally reach a point where stress keeps going up performance goes down. And it does apply to real life. My dad was a minister. And there was only one Sunday morning he wasn't nervous. Mm -hmm. Easter Sunday. Biggest congregation of the year. Came time for the offering. Biggest money for the year. That's important in a church. The choir stood up behind dad. Dad kept going. No offering. Alan Clark had the choir sit down. Dad preached a wonderful sermon. And my dad had a tradition of shaking hands with everybody who went out the door. And Alan Clark came up at the end. He says, Jim, do you know you forgot to take the offering? My dad was chagrined. And, and he's told me this, he told me this story several times. And when somebody says, boy, I'm a little nervous and excited before this, I say, let me tell you a story. That's great. I actually had someone ask me this year. I said, oh, you know, I get really nervous about four or five days before the start of Race Across the West or RAM, and I get nervous before I'm announcing or any time I do a speech or in a play. I mean, I'm super nervous, but as a kid, I, I think I would go overboard, and it would really affect my performance in a negative way. Now, I've only had one or two times where I, I haven't been nervous, and then I've just been really flat. I'm yes. I mean, it's like, heck yeah, I get nervous. <laughs> and it's appropriate. It is appropriate. And we use that. We have. We start to learn, okay, a little bit of this is a good thing. And if it's too much, having tools, and it's different for each person, for bringing it down a level so that we feel like, hmm, I've got the edge, but I'm not over the edge. <laughs> and the, I should say, too, um, one of the things that's been shown is that for athletes, those who know how to train in a way that they can stress themselves and then somehow the body knows that there's going to be recovery, that those folks are able to actually stress themselves a little more. So there's some kind of somatic memory around the pattern that one develops as an athlete 
so that if you're stressing and then you get you give yourself recovery and you get that your body actually allows you to stress a little more the next time I think we do a lot of workouts that way, John. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we do many, many workouts that way. And, and part of it is the motivation of, oh, my God, if I just get through this, I can take tomorrow off. I can lie down. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've gotten through another midlife radio episode. <laughs> we can all lie down now. All right. <laughs> Thank gosh. Nap time. <laughs> I'll race you to the, the men's okay. room. <laughs> John Hughes, Dr. Robin Saltonsall. Thanks very much for joining us. Over the top studios at Scratch Labs in Boulder, Colorado. I'm George Thomas.